You know, for everyone out there, my name is Seamus Reardon, and today we have Robert Brennan, uh, who is currently the director of open source uh, software at Fairwinds. So good to see you, Robert. Yeah, thanks, Seamus. Thanks for having me here. So Robert has agreed to join us uh, this morning on the Dev DC podcast, uh, which is geared towards the growth and development of engineers. So he's going to talk a little bit about his career, what he's seeing in the industry, and then share any advice or insights he might have. Yeah, I'm excited to, I guess, start here. Awesome. Thanks. So let's just uh, kick it off and, and hear about your story, Robert. Um, you're an interesting guy. I've known you for quite some time. Um, you know, I'll let you kick it off where you want it to begin. Cool. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, the start of my of my uh, uh, career as a software engineer probably get, begins in college. I um, I started as a, as a math major at Columbia University and uh, quickly realized I didn't really have the, uh, the theoretical skills in order to be a mathematician. And um, I uh, ended up doing a second degree in the engineering school, um, which was much, much more my speed. I really like being hands-on with things I've found. Um, I like building things. Um, I like seeing the, the fruits of my work come to, uh, you know, like on, on the screen, um, rather than just doing like pen and paper type, uh, type proofs. So I, I found the, um, I found software engineering to be a lot more rewarding. Um, and, uh, never really looked back at the, the kind of theoretical math side of things. Um, I got an internship, uh, in my, my first semester as a computer science student at Google, um, working on the search engine doing, uh, the titles and descriptions of, of search results there, um, which was a really fun uh, internship. It was the first internship I had where I was really like given the power to actually do things instead of just like fetch coffee and make copies and things like that. And it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually made a change that got shipped into Google search uh, during that internship. And that was a really, a really rewarding feeling. That was the first time I really did something that was like valuable to the world as a software engineer. And it was, it was addictive, honestly, it was, um, it was a very, uh, it was a very great feeling to be able to kind of, uh, you know, go to my parents and friends and be like, you know, here's, here's the change that I made. Here's how Google search is now different, um, based on, you know, the work that I did over the summer. Um, so that, that feeling definitely grabbed me. I ended up, um, moving full-time to Google, uh, after graduating, um, and I ended up working there for about three years on that, that same exact team. Um, I had such a blast there during my internship. It was kind of a no brainer for me to join up, um, and work there full time. Um, so that was, that, those were my, those were my first days, uh, all very, um, very oriented towards like, uh, uh, natural language processing and, um, kind of the, the languagey side of machine learning, uh, was very interesting to me. Uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of how I got yeah. my start. So uh, as long as I've known, you've always been a very humble guy, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, you appreciate you, you know, reflecting back on uh, you going from a math major and, uh, you know, being more focused on or thinking that really engineering was more, you know, up your alley. Um, addictive is one word that I think like stuck out when you were, um, you know, talking about your first, uh, I guess, real um, internship where you got to kind of have a little bit more autonomy, uh, at Google. Um, it's funny cause we, we both interned at Iron Mountain and I was like, yeah, I kind of understand. Yeah. Um, we did our time. Um, but you know, part of this podcast, right. Is talking to people who are, um, exploring their careers and, um, what would you say, you know, you look for, uh, when you're looking at interviewing for people now that you've, uh, you know, made your way over to like a director role. 
Yeah. So the, the, I mean, you know, the, the two buckets that I put my, um, uh, you know, thoughts into are, uh, basically, you know, technical skills, right. Um, you know, just the ability to do the work involved in the job is obviously very important, but, um, you know, maybe even more importantly is that sort of personality culture fit, uh, kind of aspect of things. Um, and, and specifically I'm looking at things like an appetite for learning, um, you know, uh, uh, flexibility, um, you know, the ability to be, you know, a, a member of a team, um, more than once I've, I've found technically very, very qualified candidates, people who are, you know, rock stars in terms of their ability to, uh, write code to, you know, understand a problem, but there was so much ego there that, mm. uh, I just knew, you know, they'd be a nightmare to work with. And I think we've all had that experience of working right. with somebody who was, you know, great at, at, you know, doing the, the thing that they were hired for, but just not a team player, not the kind of person that you can work well with. And they end up being a lot more disruptive than they are helpful. Um, and so that's, that's always the really hard thing for me when I'm hiring is, is finding one of those candidates who just kills it on the technical portion of the interview and still having to say no, because I know that it, they're just going to lead to headaches. They're going to rub their teammates the wrong way. Uh, they're not going to be the kind of person who mentors their teammates. They're not right. going to be the kind of person who listens to criticism well. Um, and uh, learning, learning to say no to those people is probably the hardest thing to do as a hiring manager. Yep. Um, you kind of ended your career talk at like Google, right? Did you, did you get... Um, I guess that understanding of what a good candidate is based on your time at Google or, you know, when did you determine like, Hey, it's not just about the technical skills. It's more about like, Hey, do I want to be around this person? Are they going to add value to the team? Yeah, I, I would say, um, so Google, Google does a great job in their hiring process. That was the first time I started interviewing candidates was at Google, um, yeah. but it was as like an individual contributor, That's cool. um, looking more at technical skill. Sure. Um, the reason Google does such a great job at hiring is that they have so many incoming candidates that they yeah. can be as picky as they want. And Absolutely. Still get the top, the top right. tier, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I would honestly say Google, Google was great because um, anybody who had, you know, any, uh, if there was any question about their technical ability or there was any question about their cultural fit, they would just say no. Um, sure. They would rather, they would rather reject 10 qualified candidates, um, uh, then let one unqualified person or one problematic person in. Um, and so that, that was, you know, a very unique position to be in. Um, but I, I can honestly say I loved every single one of my coworkers at Google. They were all incredibly smart. Uh, they were all, uh, just wonderfully nice people, uh, willing to, to listen and mentor and teach each other. And, um, it was a really cool environment for that reason. Um, you know, you don't have as much of that, uh, in a, in a startup setting, right. You kind of, yeah. you have to sell people a little bit more and you have, you have to pick through a lot more, uh, resumes and, um, it's, uh, it's a much harder hiring process. You don't just have fish jumping in the boat. Right. Sure. Um, and I would say it's, it's in that startup setting that it was the first time I kind of had to work with people who, um, you know, again, we're, we're technically very competent, but, you know, maybe not the easiest people to work with. Um, and, uh, that's when I, it, it was really in that startup, um, uh, atmosphere that I started to, to piece together how important it is to, um, to look at people's culture fit, to look at how, how much you would enjoy working with them in addition to their technical ability. Right. So, I mean, you left Google for a startup and, uh, you know, you mentioned there are people that you know, you, you had millions of, I don't know, maybe not millions, but you had certainly way more applicants than what you needed to fill positions at at Google. 
um, like what, what made you like make the jump from, you know, one of the best sought after companies to work for in the world, uh, you know, and you were working on search, which is like their main, you know, moneymaker. And now, you know, what made you leave? What made you say, Hey, there's something else out there that I want to go after myself. Yeah. You can imagine I get that question a lot. <laughs> I know a lot of people yeah. at Google do it though, you know, so yeah. it's gotta be part of what they're looking for. But. It's um, so I had never honestly planned on working for a giant multinational company. It yeah. was um, I kind of just, I got that internship and I really enjoyed the work I was doing and, and decided to go for it. And I learned a lot of my time there. I, I loved my time there. Um, but I'd always been interested in working for myself. I'd always been interested in entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, I found myself at the age of uh, about 26. Um, and, uh, I, um, I guess I just realized that this was a, a unique time in my life where I didn't have a lot of commitments. I didn't have a family yeah. or a mortgage yet or anything like that. So, uh, I was like, you know what, if, if I'm going to try and, you know, take a giant risk, now's the time to do it. Um, uh, and, uh, I went for it. It was, uh, um, I basically, I, I quit with, with no plan, um, which was probably a little, a little rash, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, I ended up starting a company with my brother and we, um, we worked for about four years doing a combination of services and software and we had a blast doing it. Nice. Um, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was really cool working for myself. I got to see, you know, a lot more parts of the business. I think one of the, one of the problems with, um, you know, being an engineer at Google is that you or a company, you know, like Google, a company that size, um, is you, you really are just focused on the one thing that you're supposed sure. to be working on. You know, you're yeah. just doing engineering work on one tiny piece of the product. Um, you don't really get that holistic vision of, of, um, of, uh, the product life cycle. You don't really see the sales side of things, the marketing side of things, the financial side of things. That's all kind of obscured away from you. There are other people taking care of that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I left to do my own thing, I found, I got to wear 30 different hats. I got to be the sales guy, the marketing guy, the, the, the financial guy. And my brother luckily, um, was able to take care of a lot of the sales and marketing thing for me because I'm not good at that. And the financial thing, and I got to focus on the engineering stuff, but it was still, I had to be involved in those decisions. I had to, um, you know, I had to make, you know, end hiring decisions when we did hire contractors and stuff like that. And, uh, it's, um, it's really fun to just get to get to see every piece of the business and how it all comes together and, um, you know, work hand in hand with the, with the customers and have to do, um, all that kind of, uh, more human level communication and things like that. Um, it was definitely a, it was definitely a crash course for me. It was a, it was a big culture shock going from, like, oh, sure. I only have to do my one little thing to, I have to do all the things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it was awesome growth though, during that time. For sure. Yeah, no, it was, um, I think it was a little bit of a shock to me in the first year or so, like how much I didn't know. Um, I think I was a little, a little too confident going into it thinking like, yeah, I'll figure it all out. Yeah, sure. Fine. Yeah. And, uh, there was, there was so much that I had to learn in that first year, even, even from an engineering perspective, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, at Google, you know, not only is all the, the sales and marketing and finance stuff taken care of for taking care of for you, but like all the, software infrastructure stuff is taken care of for you. So I didn't know how to ship a, a production application. I didn't know how to, um, you know, uh, provision servers and, and uh, you know, launch things in a scalable way or anything like that. I had to learn DevOps from scratch, basically, because uh, cool. I just never had to learn that at Google. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so the, that first year was definitely a crash course and had to launch an application. Yeah. And, and 
So, so when you look back at it, right. I mean, you've had a cool career. Um, and I know it's just beginning, like, I'm super excited for you guys at Fairwinds. I, and I would love to have you talk about that a little bit, but before we get into that, like you look back at what you've done, you know, uh, since Columbia, you know, let's say you're, you know, Robert, you know, just graduating, like, you know, what would, what advice would you give someone and say, like, he was just entering their career or maybe who's looking to grow as an engineer? Um, the advice I'd give is to, you know, spend, spend that first, you know, five to 10 years of your career, just learning as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I, I would say one of the things I would probably do if I went back is rather than, you know, I, so I learned a ton at Google and I'm glad I did a few sure. years there. Um, I learned from some really, really, um, just brilliant people. Um, I think it would have been helpful for me to, rather than going out and just trying to start my own thing straight out of Google would be to go to a startup, you know, like a, uh, 30 person startup ish, um, a place with, you know, maybe, maybe a dozen or so engineers, uh, and just see, um, what it's like working, uh, at that kind of scale. Um, yeah. because it was such a culture shock for me to go from, you know, 50,000 engineers to, to one engineer. Um, uh, I think I would have picked up some more best practices around things like, uh, deployment and, um, you know, the, the, um, software development life cycle and how to be, you know, kind of an agile startup with, uh, with, a um, you know, just starting to find product market fit rather than, um, you know, going from, you know, Google search to, you know, a tiny, you know, uh, uh, you know, brand new startup. Um, I think I would have learned a lot more, uh, had I, had I spent a, you know, a year or two in that kind of setting. Right. I think, I think it's easy, um, to look back at it and, you know, have an understanding of what you should have done as far as career growth. It's, it's funny that you say like going to a startup early would make sense because I kind of feel the same way. Like I, I interned, you know, in finance, I interned in like, I call it like lobbying or international business. And I interned, uh, you know, at Iron Mountain. And then my reasoning at that time was like, Hey, I, I don't know really what I want to do. I want to get experience in all these things and then go back. And like, looking back at it, my, you know, the, the culture at Iron Mountain, what I was doing in sales and marketing was my best fit. And it's like, Hey, I could have landed at a tech company that was a startup. And like, as an intern or like, you know, first one or two years, if you're showing up and you're working hard and you're like, you know, bringing in like a good attitude every day, you're going to be able to experience every single part of the business. Um, so yeah, like I totally feel you there. I think that a lot of people chase like a really big name, not like that's not a really good thing. Cause there's enormous uh, value that's brought as far as networking and mentors and things like that. But I think right off the bat, like a startup's pretty, uh, pretty good bet if you're not totally sure. So um, that, br- that brings us to Fairwinds kind of naturally. Um, I know we're skipping a little bit over like Lucy Bot, the startup that you and uh, Andrew had. And I think you did a couple other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fairwinds, like what excites you about that? What's going on? Um, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So, so with Fairwinds, I feel like I found this perfect middle ground between the giant, uh, enterprise with 50,000 developers versus like my own tiny little thing. Um, you know, with one engineer plus a few contractors, uh, Fairwinds, we have, you know, it's, it's about a 30 to 40 person company. Um, it's still small enough that I get to wear a lot of hats. I get to, you know, write blog posts for, for marketing. I get to sit in on sales calls. 
Um, I got to do all sorts of fun stuff, um, you know, around the business as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also get to focus mainly on the thing that I'm good at, which is engineering. Right. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Um, so I guess, yeah, for, for background on Fairwinds, we do, um, we do Kubernetes, uh, software and services. Um, so we're really the, the mission of the company is to, um, help folks be successful with Kubernetes. Um, we started as a, um, as a mainly a consultancy where we would do, you know, hands-on keyboard work with, uh, folks that wanted to build out a, um, a set of Kubernetes clusters and then manage those going forward. Um, and basically what we would do is we would manage the underlying infrastructure. We would manage the cluster themselves, the clusters themselves, as well as, um, you know, the stuff that gets layered on top, like, um, uh, DNS and ingress and certificate management and all those, all those kind of, um, undifferentiated things. And then we would right. leave it to our customers to basically take care of everything related to their application. So writing the Docker file for their app and shipping it into the clusters and all that, that was kind of left to them. Um, but the problem was we, we, we saw them making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, they would do things that weren't secure, things that wouldn't scale, um, you know, uh, just a, you know, a few things off the top of my head, like um, they would have their containers running as root when they didn't need to, um, which has all sorts of security concerns attached to it. They wouldn't specify how much CPU and memory their application should be using. Mm -hmm. um, and then their clusters would just fall over. You know, the applications would fall over. And yeah. They'd get mad at us saying like, why, you know, you're supposed to be in charge of the infrastructure. We'd be like, you did all this stupid stuff that like, you know, this is why your app fell over. Sure. Um, so we built some software to basically help them ensure that they were doing everything uh, the right way, according to best practices, uh, doing things in a secure way. Um, and that software is called Fairwinds Insights. Um, okay. That's really where I where I came in at Fairwinds. I was the first uh, full-time software engineer at Fairwinds. Um, I came on about two years ago, uh, building this platform, Fairwinds Insights. Um, and uh, the idea is that we can scan your Kubernetes cluster, scan all your, all your applications inside of it, um, and basically bubble up um, a set of action items for anything that looks like it's kind of uh, deviating from best practices or deviating from your own internal policies. Um, whether it's around security or efficiency or reliability, um, we basically give you a, a, a dashboard and a health score saying like, here's nice. how you're doing, here's how you're improving over time. Here's what you should be focused on. Uh, and it's been, it's been really successful. We've, um, we've had a lot of success helping, um, helping our customers basically be, um, you know, a lot more secure and, and efficient and reliable with their, with their Kubernetes deployments. Sure. Um, Kubernetes is, is such a, uh, it, it's such a, big, broad ecosystem. It's, it's kind yeah. of hard to wrap your, your mind around. It's, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of unknown unknowns when you're deploying Kubernetes. Um, yeah. and I think we we've successfully helped to, um, you know, make it a little bit more, you know, easier to get your hands around and, and, you know, you know, feel like you, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, at least what you need to be doing in order to be more secure, be more reliable, be more efficient. Okay. Uh, what, what I hear is, um, engineers want the benefits of Kubernetes. They don't necessarily want to learn it. it, it does that help like align to what you guys are doing at Fairwinds? That, yeah, that definitely rings true. Yeah. Okay. There's, um, I think, I think one of the, one of the tough things with Kubernetes is that the easiest way to get things running is to do it in a really insecure and, you know, really kind of a naive way. Uh, like for instance, a lot of, a lot of teams, when they first deploy to Kubernetes, um, you know, they, uh, if they, if they tell Kubernetes how much CPU and memory that their application should be using at all, which often they'll just leave that unspecified and Kubernetes sure. is left to guess. Yeah. Um, if they specify it at all, though, they'll 
they'll they'll add you know five times as much as they actually need because that they, then they know their their application is mm-hmm. not going to get like shut down because sure. it's using too much memory or CPU, and that ends up costing the company five times as much money as it should, right? Right. Um, and so uh, you really need somebody in there saying like, hey, you you asked for twenty gigabytes of memory for this application. It's only using two gigabytes of memory. Maybe you should tune that down. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot of like insecure ways to, to set things up just so, just to get the application running and the developer often feels like, well, you know, it's running the website loads, it's fine. Uh, you know, ship it, we're fine. Sure. Uh, and they don't want to ask all those questions about, well, like what happens when we get a whole bunch of traffic? Is it going to scale up appropriately? Right. Uh, what happens if an attacker finds their way into, uh, you know, finds a, a little hole in the application, are they going to be able to, uh, you know, get into our database? Are they going to be able to spread throughout the cluster and find things that they shouldn't be able to get into? Um, and it really takes a lot of discipline to, um, you know, not just say, hey, the app's working, it's fine, let it go. Uh, you really have to say, you know, okay, are we doing things securely, reliably, efficiently? Right. I mean, I hear, um, you know, provisioning. And then I also hear like dashboard. And to me, that's like, means you're probably talking to the application owners or the, the people that are actual engineers. And then you're, you're probably talking to management too, right? Is that, yeah. It, and then yeah. does your dashboard show like cost management with the cloud? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of persona, I would say we're really, we sit kind of between uh, dev and ops. Right? Okay. So um, we, we often, uh, I think one of the, one of the, the best stories I hear is that, you know, a, a DevOps team who's, you know, in charge of all the infrastructure um, says that, you know, they've been hounding the development team, like, Hey, you have to do things more securely. You have to do things more efficiently. You know, you need to change this, this, and this. Um, and the, the development team just kind of ignores them. They're like, Hey, the app's running, like, don't worry about yeah. it. It'll be fine. Um, and the, the ops team really feels like they don't have the, um, the, the buy-in from the development team. And when they get the insights dashboard in front of them, it makes it easier for them to say, hey, look, this, this third party that's an expert in security, they're an expert in Kubernetes, um, they're saying that you need to do this. It gives them kind of some, some extra clout, some extra, okay. um, something extra to lean on. Um, and you know they can put up a health score and say, hey, you know, team A, look how bad you're doing compared to team B. Um, they can really start to, to um, you know, gamify, I guess, uh, right. the, the security and efficiency and reliability aspects of deploying it to Kubernetes. Um, and yeah, in terms of, in terms of cost versus uh, security, I would say we're probably like two thirds security, one third cost. Okay. Um, we've, we've been really focused on, on security and policy and governance, um, because we're, we're really seeing the most pain and need there, but there's also definitely, uh, especially around COVID, uh, budgets got a little bit tighter. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we have definitely seen a little bit of, um, uh, uptick and in interest around cost efficiency and things like that. So we have, we have some cool features around that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, Kubernetes is obviously a super hot spot. Um, I, I am curious, just taking a step back and you just putting like your, I guess your developer hat on. Right. And uh, when you're, when you're thinking about like what's cool out there, right. We're seeing a lot of um, interesting change in technology and things are starting to speed up and um you know, besides like Kubernetes, like what else out there kind of catches your eye and is like, Hey, this is super interesting. Yeah. I think, um, in general, the, the, um, the way that the open source ecosystem has flourished over the last, you know, decade or so, uh, has been really amazing to see. 
Um, I think there's two two major developments there that um, made things really exciting. One one is just the advent of GitHub. I mean, it's hard to understate uh, just how important GitHub has been for the open source world. Um, you know, the fact that I can now you know publish my source code on online for free. Um, I can engage a whole community of developers for free. Um, it's really it, it's become a, a central place for for developers to gather and work on things together in the open. Um, and there's just this uh, because of that, there's this this huge flourishing open source ecosystem where now like I can I can write, you know, an enterprise grade application without having to do, uh, you know, all sorts of of crazy work around, you know, the database and authentication and um, like there's all this kind of undifferentiated work that I would have had to do 10, 15 years ago to get an application up and running um, that now is just kind of I can just kind of stitch together all this open source, like, you know, like Lego blocks, I can just kind of piece them together and I can just focus on, you know, what I do best or, you know, what um, the like sort of uh, differentiating features of my application, um, which makes mm -hmm. it, you know, a much, a much easier place for, for startups to play in. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, it's a much, um, uh, it's a much more, you know, competitive environment. Uh, you know, anybody can start a software company today. Anybody can yeah, start it's wonderful, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's really cool. <laughs> you know, yep. it's tough for the incumbents, but um, it know, makes it, everyone it, better it's, though. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, it allows us all to focus on, you know, again, what we do best rather than focusing on all that undifferentiated work. Um, so I, I love, I love the open source ecosystem and how it's, how it's been blooming. Um, and then the other half on top of GitHub, I think that, that I find really interesting is, is we're finding ways to monetize open source. Mm. Um, I think we're still, the community's still, uh, really trying to figure out how, you know, what commercial open source looks like, what business models around open source uh, look like. But uh, the, the biggest issue with open source right now, I would say is that it's often unsustainable. You're relying on, you know, a small community of volunteers who are overworked, often just working in their off hours or on weekends and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a thankless job. A lot of the time people just complain and open bugs and, uh, um, it's uh, it's hard to 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 you know expect those those volunteers to just in perpetuity keep working on this software. So I I really am excited that there are some big companies who are investing in open source. Mm -hmm. Kubernetes is a great example where you know it's backed by Google. Right. Um, there are folks from companies like Red Hat and um, you know just all all over the place contributing to that software. They 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 have full time engineers working just on this open source project. Um, and that's, that's really amazing to see because that's, that's what creates, a, you know, a really sustainable open source project is if it has the, the financial backing of, um, of some larger companies. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see kind of big open source take off like that. Yeah. Well, what do you think that could mean? You know, if like, uh, we're able to get, you know, it's like a flat, like playing field for everybody across the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can answer that question, you're doing pretty, pretty dang good. If you know what that could mean. <laughs> I, the, the, the interesting thing to me is we've kind of seen more and more of the development stack get eaten up by open source. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I think it probably started with Linux uh, basically taking over the world of, of servers. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, windows server was still a thing, you know, maybe uh, 15 years ago or so. Yeah, it depends who you're talking to still nowadays, but <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think something like 90% of servers now run on Linux. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's really just eaten up the, the server space. And then, you know, 
programming languages, databases, it's really hard to find proprietary, um, you know, core infrastructure now. Um, I think Kubernetes was kind of the next domino to fall where now you can manage and orchestrate infrastructure um, with, with nothing but open source software um, at a really, you know, enterprise scale. Um, so the question to me is like, how far does that go? You know, are we going to see at some point, um, you know, consumer grade applications um, with uh, that are that are just backed by open source? I think Signal right. is a great example. The, the messaging app is is totally open source, um, and it's a company that's making money. Um, but it's uh, um, it's really interesting to uh, uh, to think about, like you know, will will the next big social network be open source? Will the next big you know photo sharing application be open source? Sure. Um, I would love to see you know consumer grade open source really be the next, the next domino to fall there. Yep. That's really cool. All right, Robert. Well, um, I mean, we covered a lot of things today. Um, you know, it was awesome. Like hearing about, like I've known you for a long time and, and hearing about what you're doing over at Google and, uh, you know, how you got addicted into, uh, you know, what you're doing now. That means you're probably happy. <laughs> it looks like you're happy. It looks like you're super excited. For sure. Uh, looks like Fairwinds is uh you know a cool place to be right now um I, I you know for our viewers out there today you know i guess keeping in mind like you know the whole point of um the dev dc podcast is you know to reach out and give our viewers um you know a, a source of like you know conversation with folks like yourself have been successful engineers as well as an idea of like hey you know what a mentor would suggest you know where they spend their time as they you know come up through their career is there anything else that you know you think you might want to share with us before we uh, wrap things up no i would just say you know if you're um if you're looking to break into uh into the software world it's it's definitely it's a competitive place these days but it's yep. um it's a really fun place to be and uh and fairwinds is hiring so reach out if, yes, uh, you if you're looking for a gig and kubernetes is a good place to be playing right now for sure all right. Well, thanks so much, Robert. Um, you know, during this time, like I said, we want to bring value to the listeners, largely folks in IT. So engineers, software developers, um, you know, at the end uh, of this podcast, I'll share my cell phone and email. And for the, the listeners out there, if there's anyone that, uh, you know, they want to bring on the podcast, please send me a note and I'll make sure to reach out to them. And we'll try to have great people like Robert Brennan on uh, to be talking about where their career is at today, what they've done before and uh, where they see the world going. So thanks again, Robert. Appreciate the time. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. Thank you, Seamus. Have a good one.